bit of fun with Emily. It's me, your host, Emily. I am glad you're here. We're still talking romantic comedies here in season four. We've talked about some of my faves, characters, tropes, quotes. Then we talked about pen pals and lies. Next up was Sabrina's and lies. And finally, sex comedies, parodies, and lies. <laughs> it's a little discouraging when you really think about about it, how lying to the man or woman you are attracted to is the main plot in most romantic comedies. Is that funny? I don't know that that's funny. But I thought I'd take a bit, a bit of a detour today to explore the concept of opposites attracting. Is this a real thing or is it just fantasy? That had a Bohemian Rhapsody vibe, didn't it? I still won't sing for you, even though the song is now definitely playing through my head. Is it in yours? You are a welcome, dear listener. But back to how it appears sometimes that opposites attract. Today, we're going to explore the topic through two entirely different movies, and all because I wanted to talk about one in particular. The 1967, I'm going to call it a classic because I love it, Barefoot in the Park, starring Jane Fonda and Robert Redford. I really just wanted to talk about how adorable a young Robert Redford was. He was almost too pretty. He was no Paul Newman with the icy blue eyes, but it's not hard to figure out why Redford was a star in the 70s. But before we get there, I did the slightest bit of research about how two seemingly different individuals can find love despite their varying personalities. In a 2020 womenshealth.com article by Corinne Corinne Miller titled, Do Opposites Really Attract? Experts Weigh In, she interviews clinical psychologist John Mayer, not the crooning wordsmith of your body is a wonderland fame, who posits that people are attracted to individuals they believe to be opposite of themselves because they are actually attracted to the traits or ambitions, personality quirks that they believe they suck at themselves. Quote, the actual attraction is over a quality you would like to develop or build up in yourself, Mayer says. If that's true, and I lean towards yes, it is, are they then really our opposite? Just because someone may be a confident extrovert that can walk into a party and talk with complete strangers with ease, and I cannot, doesn't make them my opposite. It may just mean that either I'm, one, lazy and don't want to work on that confidence thing because I don't need to because this person I've walked in is really good at it, or two, we're just different. I think I could, I get caught up in the word opposite. Uh, I looked up the definition because that's what I do. And it says a person or thing that is totally different from or the reverse of someone or something else. In the scenario just mentioned, we're both at the party. We're not totally different. I, I just choose to sit in the corner and read the book I brought while the very handsome, charming gentleman that isn't living in my imagination uh, is more about the mingling. It doesn't mean we're opposites. We're just different. So then I found this other article on BetterHelp.com by Joanne Smikowski that came out actually just this last week entitled, Do Opposites Attract? Here's what science says. It's more an issue of individuals complementing each other, she says. Quote, so to answer the question, do opposites attract? Not really. Similarities in age, intelligence, religion, and education level are the blocks that build the foundation for a healthy relationship. There are also pheromones in chemistry. So that's all I've got in the research thing. I thought it was kind of interesting, especially right around Valentine's Day, this talk of opposites attract. Is this a real thing or not? So on to the movies, though. Barefoot in the Park and my favorite Hugh Grant romantic comedy, Two Weeks Notice. So Barefoot in the Park, we have a couple of newlyweds. Corey, played by Jane Fonda, and Paul, the one and only Robert Redford. They have completely different personalities. Corey is 
She's spontaneous and enthusiastic and like the life of the party. She's always up for anything, a boundless optimist and just easy with laughter. Paul, on the other hand, is all business. He's a shirt and tie kind of man. Even when he's relaxing, he's skeptical about most things and an ambitious new lawyer. So he's, he's got plans for his career, you know? So despite their differences, they are madly in love, can't keep their hands off one another. That is until Corey settles them into a fifth floor walk-up that is super tiny, has a hole in the skylight, no bathtub, and a radiator that doesn't work. And you know what's actually very refreshing to see a young couple just starting out in the big city living in an apartment that is within their means instead of something lavish, lavish and larger than any regular person would live in in New York City. You see that in Pillow Talk and Down With Love. The size of the apartments is ridiculous. I can't even imagine how much they would cost in today's market. Um, If you've never watched YouTube YouTube channels of like some of the smallest apartments in New York City, it's absolutely fascinating. If you're claustrophobic, it would terrify you. Back to the movie. So Corey's cockeyed optimism is infectious. And despite the close quarters, Paul plays along. He's a pretty good sport about it all. So does Corey's mother, Ethel, who is a widower and just this quiet woman. She makes it all the way up the stairs several times, which is pretty impressive. But Corey gets it in her head that it would be a fantastic idea to set her mother up with Victor Valesco, their eccentric upstairs neighbor who wears flamboyant robes, eats his meals on the floor, and hasn't paid his rent in several months. In fact, he has been locked out of his apartment, so he has to go through Corey and Paul's apartment, climb up onto the roof to get to his attic apartment. I don't quite understand how his apartment works because he literally climbs a ladder to his front door when he's paid rent. I don't know. This is quirky New York City. So one evening, the four go on a double date to an Albanian restaurant where the drinks, they're flowing. Corey and Victor spend a good deal of the evening dancing around the room with the belly dancer, much to the horror and embarrassment of Ethel and Paul. When they finally get back home to the fifth floor walk up, drunk and out of breath, Victor offers to escort Ethel home just as Corey and Paul get into an argument about their personalities. Side note before we get into the argument, why did they force Ethel to walk all the way up the stairs? to the fifth floor apartment, and then only to have Victor agree to walk her home. But that's neither here nor there. So the argument, Corey calls Paul a stuffed shirt and is frustrated that his cautious, conservative attitude dampers her adventurous spirit. And because she has impulse control issues, her immediate reaction is to demand a divorce after just being married about a week. Paul spends the night on the couch under the broken skylight, and then gets up early the next morning for court, but is forced to leave early because he's come down with quite the cold. The radiator didn't work, and he was literally being snowed on. So Corey demands he move out. They start arguing in the apartment, so Paul grabs a suitcase, a bottle of alcohol, and storms out to a park bench where he gets very drunk, and in an act of spontaneity, because he can be spontaneous, he gifts his winter coat to a stranger, and then he dances around in his bare feet in the dead of winter. Meanwhile, Corey has a heart-to-heart with her mother, who incidentally has found her own adventurous spirit after an evening out with Victor and realizes the horrible mistake she has made. So she goes searching for Paul. When she finds him, he's in quite the state. Emboldened by the drink, Paul tells Corey she has to move out, and he, he decides to head back home. When they both get back to the apartment, Paul climbs up onto the roof, delirious with fever, almost falls off, and the two make up as Corey climbs up into the heights to get him safely down. 
I'm not sure if they live happily ever after. Corey seems like a handful and would be absolutely exhausting, but I think it goes back to that idea of complimenting one another. Corey pulls Paul out of his shell while Paul kind of tones down Corey's crazy. And in the end, they're not opposites. They're friends and lovers and two people that have made the choice to build a life together. It's a very cute movie. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend. A few interesting facts. Robert Redford loathed wearing a suit and tie all day, which was required for his character. So during breaks in filming, he wore Western boots and a black cowboy hat. (laughs) I like that. I don't know. Uh, Jane Fonda has said this is one of her favorites of her own films. Redford actually played the role on Broadway preceding the movie. It was based on a play by Neil Simon, which was based on the first early weeks of marriage to his wife, Joan Bame, and the role of Corey was originally offered to actress Natalie Wood. I thought that was interesting. So that was Barefoot in the Park. See, they're very two very different people who I, I, I don't think it was their oppositeness that attracted them to one another because I think when Paul starts to see Corey's crazy, it's not, that's not the attraction necessarily. It's, it's all of the other qualities that, that she has. So now on to Two Weeks Notice starring Hugh Grant and Sandra Bullock. So Bullock plays Lucy Kelson, an intelligent woman and lawyer who has a passion for activism, particularly for historical preservation, environmental law, and pro bono work. When she discovers that her beloved Coney Island Community Center is going to get torn down, she accepts a position working for George Wade, who's this kind of arrogant and childish billionaire who's in need of a new chief of staff. Um, His family is in real estate development. So she, if she works for him, he says he'll save the community center. But working for George is easier said than done. (laughs) Lucy likes boundaries and guidelines and office supplies. She's a woman of action who finds herself with a man almost crippled by decision making. George doesn't really want a chief of staff. He wants a life, a life coach. And Lucy's no-nonsense approach is just kind of what he thinks he needs at all hours of the day. He needs someone to call him out and when he's being an idiot and to show him life outside of his expensive penthouse apartment, to make him care about other, anything other than himself. But the thing is, Lucy needs George too. She needs someone to pull her out of her predictability, to challenge her insecurities and force her to have a little fun, to be a little goofy. So they quickly become friends who are kind of flirty. Then Lucy decides she needs to leave working for George. With the community center's fate secure, she would like to return kind of to her roots and lend her talents and expertise to helping people who really need it. She wants to go back to legal aid and she wants to try to save some of these historic buildings in in the city. But hiring a replacement quickly leads to jealousy as George's attentions are shifted to a a potential higher June Carver. That's where some of the best comedic moments of the movie come in. Uh, There's this one scene with Lucy who has overindulged on Coney dogs and cookies at a tennis match, probably at George's club. I don't know where it's at. And they are heading back into the city, city and Lucy desperately needs a bathroom on the way back. So George, they're stuck in traffic. So George pays a family who owns an RV, they're sitting in their RV stuck in traffic for use of their facilities. Um, It's just, it's a great moment. Hugh Grant trying to distract the family from Lucy making noises in the bathroom. And then the RV starts to move and their car is still parked on the interstate. It's just great. Or there's this scene where Lucy gets very drunk because she has just broken up with her boyfriend 
that's in Greenpeace. They never see each other. Um, and it's because she thinks it's because she doesn't like boats. He wants her to come and stay on this boat with him and she doesn't like boats. So George gets her drunk and they end up on <laughs> his yacht that is just, it's docked in the harbor. It's not moving. Um, and she's got a life vest on the whole time. And she starts talking about being bendy like a pretzel. <laughs> it's a good time. Just cracks me up. So June seems to get the job because George likes her despite her lack of real estate law experience. And the three kind of end up at a formal gala together. It's kind of the last big shebang that Lucy's going to attend. And it's at this gala that Lucy learns that George's brother, who's really the boss of the company, has decided to move ahead with demolishing the community center, despite George's promise. And then later in the evening, when Lucy goes to confront George at his apartment about the situation, she finds him in a compromising position with June. So then she starts yelling at him to kind of be better that promises mean something and he had promised her this and then he gets defensive and he accuses her of her of kind of acting like a saint, making everyone else feel bad about themselves when they make mistakes like people are prone to do. So Lucy leaves. And um, she ends up going to work for legal aid. And you can tell she misses George, and George realizes that Lucy was right. He needs to do better, and she inspires him to be better. So he goes against his brother's wishes, announcing that the community center will not be torn down. And then he comes into the legal aid offices and finds her and gives this really grand, sweet speech Um which she kind of rejects at the beginning because uh, it's probably a pride thing. And then as he leaves, she realizes, oh, my goodness, that was a great speech. I love him. And she goes chasing after him. And then they order Chinese food together and they kiss. And it's just it's a lovely ending. It's a lovely ending. I wouldn't call George and Lucy opposites in this situation either. I'd call them, again, different. Different childhoods, different career paths, different passions, different socioeconomic situations. And while their relationship is built on a rather dysfunctional friendship, it's a friendship that encourages each to be better versions of themselves. They don't change one another, but again, complement the other where they're lacking individually. And I, I really like that about this movie. And the pair are hilarious together, both charming, both frustrating, both hilarious. And you really want them to be together at the end. Will the relationship last? I don't know. <laughs> I hope so. I really hope so. And I learned that apparently there's a deleted scene I did not know about out there somewhere showing them getting married in the community center. And I just, I don't know how I missed that. I've watched this movie a lot and I just don't know how I've never seen that. And I couldn't find it on the YouTube. So I'm going to have to break out my DVD. It's hidden somewhere and I'm going to have to look to see if it's in the deleted scenes. So a few fun facts about this movie. Hugh Grant said that Sandra Bullock was his favorite person to work with throughout his career. The Coney Island Community Center is, in fact, the child's restaurant building that went out of business years ago. It was designated a New York City landmark on February 4th, 2003, one month after the release of the movie, which I really like. And I don't know if this third thing is true. I didn't. I didn't check facts, but I'm going to believe it's true because I like the connection. So Lucy likes to order Chinese food and the Chinese rest, Chinese food restaurant makes fun of her a lot because she orders enough food for like seven people and it's just her. So Lucy orders this Chinese food from a Mr. Wong. And then while you were sleeping, which came out in 1995, her character, Sandra Bullock's character, also named Lucy, says you order $10 worth of chow mein for Mr. Wong. They bring it to your door. 
So I'd like to believe that she made that connection there on purpose because that would make me happy. So did we solve anything today? No, no, we did not. Were we trying to? Oh, that's not why we're here, dear listener. We're just here to talk about pop culture and sometimes other stuff. And today it's whether or not people are actually opposites or just different human souls who meet other human souls on this journey through life and in romantic comedies. And that's what I choose to believe. But that is it for today. Join me next episode for a conversation about damsels in distress in Romancing the Stone. And it happened one night. Two entirely different movies that are in no way connected, but I found a similar theme so that I could talk about them both. And that's how this here podcast gets made. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening, really. It is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so we can keep going on this journey together. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review so that other individuals who like random conversations about pop culture with someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about and only does minimal lazy research for the podcast can have fun as well. Or if you want to share the podcast, that would be awesome too. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at gnomegirlm and on Facebook as a bit of fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today and I will see you next time. Bye.